This is the Flatlining Podcast. The 72nd anniversary of the founding of the National Health Service has been marked across the country with a nationwide round of applause. We protected the NHS during the peak of this crisis and we will protect the NHS in the future. And even just last week, we put another one and a half billion in. So we, we are constantly ensuring that the NHS has what it needs and just the sums of money that the Treasury have have put into the NHS over the last few months have been unprecedented. The healthcare Canadians get within the country can vary depending on where you live. That includes wait times for different types of care, from the time of a referral to getting the treatment they need. Saskatchewan has the shortest median total wait at 15 weeks. However, people in New Brunswick are waiting 10 months, the longest in the country. California is poised to be if this proposal is uh, supported the first state uh, in the country to achieve universal access to health coverage. So what does that mean? It means full scope Medi-Cal, including long-term care, IHSS, behavioral health to all low-income Californians, regardless of immigration status, regardless of their age, regardless of their immigration status. Full implementation will initiate January 2024 if this is approved. Just remind you, past actions, uh, no one else in the country, no other state in America has done more in this space than the state of California. It's a point of pride in the last few years in particular. It's a point of pride and passion. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, a podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been the past few times, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, what's going on? Oh, the, the question isn't what's going on, it's when is it all going to slow down? <laughs> no, this is true. This this is uh, very true. It's been a busy week for us at, at Fulcrum so far, and as, as many weeks are, and Sometimes it's it's nice to be at Wednesday and thinking about the weekend. Yes, absolutely. Well, this week we're going to be continuing our discussion about uh, healthcare affordability and why it's uh, killing the U.S. economy right now, as as we talked about last week. And this week we're going to focus specifically on one of the three things we talked about last week, which everyone seems to want in healthcare, and that's access. Uh, affordability and quality. And this week, we're going to be focusing a lot on access. But for, before we do that, Ron, you wrote a piece for flatlining.net uh, that went up yesterday. And that was about the current battle in the Senate for the, uh, or I guess the current confirmation battle in the Senate for the new Supreme Court justice. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that first. Yeah, you know, it's something that sort of struck me as indicative of the problems that we have right now in, in government um, and what are going to be some of the challenges for fixing healthcare or any of our other major problems. You know, um, this week, it looks like we'll confirm a new Supreme Court justice. It'll be the first African-American female to the bench. Um, she is, by any account, eminently qualified. I mean, she graduated from Harvard, editor of the Law Review, eight years in the federal court system. She's been approved by the Senate a couple of times already. I mean, this is somebody who you really can't look at and say is unqualified. 
And yet the vote for approval is going to be, we think, 53-47 with three Republicans voting in favor of, of approval. And that means 47 Republican senators are going to vote to not approve her. Mm-hmm. And, and I went back and looked and said, boy, this seems to be a trend, but a recent trend. And, and I look back and you look at the last four nominees um, were approved almost along a party line vote. You know, one of them getting zero votes from the other party. And the one, Kagan, the one um, that got five votes from the other party. And it made me think, well, okay, this is clearly just a party line vote. It's just a vote in opposition of whoever is nominating and whoever is the president at the time. And so it made me think, well, has it always been this way? And it hasn't. It's actually been very, very different. You know, some people say, well, you know, they're voting against her because she's way too far left. And other people say, well, I voted against this person because he or she was way too far right. But if you go back and look at probably the most conservative justice we've ever had in, in the recent times on the court, Scalia, mm-hmm. Scalia was voted, voted in 98 to zero. And then you go to the other side, probably the most liberal justice, Ginsburg, she was voted in 96 to three. So it can't be a policy perspective. I mean, no one would say that this current justice is further left than Ginsburg was. Um, Mm. And so it strikes me that really what this is, is just the party of opposition or the the disease of opposition. And that made me really think, well, how on earth are we going to get major problems solved if whichever party is in power comes up with an idea and it therefore must be bad and be opposed purely because it's their idea? And then the last thing I wrote about in there was I sort of posed a question and said, you know, we may be in a scenario where the only way a Supreme Court justice can be approved and nominated and approved is when the president and the control of the Senate happen in the same party. And I posed the question, who was the last person to be nominated when the president and the head of the, and the control of the Senate were from different parties? Mm-hmm. And it's Merrick Garland. Right. And he was declined. And you didn't even get a vote. The Republicans just refused to even hold any hearings on his nominee. Now, again, this isn't me bashing the Republicans because I'm sure if the roles were reversed and it was a Republican president and Democrats control the Senate, they would have done the same thing. You know, Mm -hmm. this is a disease that has affected both parties. So it's just I thought it was something really sad and interesting. And I I wrote about it because it's going to be the hurdle that we're going to have to overcome if we're going to get any of these problems solved, including very difficult things like healthcare. Yeah. And, you know, I, I need to be careful what I say, because I criticized the Democrats in 2020 for seeming to be every, you know, we're everything that Trump isn't. And lo and behold, President Biden won and you had the Democrats take control of this, well, 50-50 split in the Senate, keep control of the House. But it, it also seems that when we had the, um, the State of the Union back in uh, February, it was. And the Republican response then seemed to be, well, we're everything that they're not. And of course, I'm a little bit put off by that because it doesn't say anything about what you are, or what you're for, even if I think that you may be the right person for the job. And I find that very frustrating. And I'm sure a lot of other Americans find that very frustrating. And no doubt it would be frustrating when we're sitting here trying to, you know, get health care reform done when we all agree that it's broken. But then when it says that, well, I'm he's for Medicare for all and I'm against Medicare for all. So therefore, there's no solution. It's very frustrating. And, you know, nothing will ever get done, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and what it does, and you take Medicare for All as a very example, I've got some very serious issues with Medicare for All, but they're issues. It's not the person recommending it. 
And so once you just are in opposition of whatever the other person says, you get, you don't get to say, the reason I'm against it is because of this. Have you considered this and how do we solve this problem? It just stifles any further discussion or debate. Um, And then we go nowhere. Well, I think this is a good transition because uh, we have this debate here on, on the Flatlining Podcast to talk about what the three desirable qualities are in healthcare that it seems that everybody wants. And that would be uh, access, or as I've said in other places, universality. Uh, that would be affordability, and it would be quality. And this week, we're going to be focusing on access and the availability of healthcare coverage to um, Americans and, and, and people, residents in general in this country. And I guess the first question is, is what do we mean by access? Because when we hear universal access or universal coverage, they mean two different things. So could you just break down what people, what, what, when Bernie Sanders says he wants universal coverage, what does he mean when he says he wants universal coverage? Well, and, and it's an important distinction you make there, the difference between universal coverage and universal access. What Bernie means and what the proponents of a Medicare for all system or any sort of universal government pay system is that every person um, in this country would have covered insurance. Um, they would have, in essence, access to free care by the mere fact that they are living and breathing in here. Um, that's what they mean by universal coverage, that we would no longer have this issue of uninsured or underinsured. Uh, healthcare wouldn't be a bill to you, it would be a right in their eyes and you would automatically have the right to receive it, much like you have the right to a free education. Mm-hmm. So then when we're talking about coverage then, so he's obviously talking about some sort of insurance policy, making sure everyone can can get coverage without having to pay for a bill. What, what for the people that we, I mean, we grow accustomed to the things that we have and we don't often give them a second thought. What is the system like now in the United States? I mean, we have an employer-based system. What is that and how does that work? Yeah, we, we have a combination of things. We have um, part of, of our coverage is employer-based, part of it is government, state, or federal-based. And then we have some you know individual um, paid coverage. So basically, you've got the federal government covering the elderly. That's Medicare. Mm-hmm. You've got a combination of federal and state funding covering the poor. That's Medicaid. You've got employer coverage for a bulk of the Americans who get coverage offered to them through their employer group, where they either pay part or, uh, you know, or some majority part of the premium, but the plan is offered through their employer as a benefit. And then you do have some members typically buying it through the Affordable Care Act exchanges, where individuals don't have coverage offered through their employer and they're buying their own. That is usually, depending on their income, highly subsidized, so they're not paying for everything, but they're choosing the policy they want and paying some portion of that. And then we've got, um, you know, right now, somewhere around 30 million people who are uninsured, um, either because they're choosing not to purchase it, or it's just too expensive for them and not offered otherwise. Um, And so we've got that combination of, you know, government-funded, employer-funded, individual-funded, and uninsured, which the countries that have universal coverage don't have that concept of uninsured. So what is, uh, so in the United States, what does that mean if you, if you don't have, if you're uninsured or underinsured, what does that mean for you if you needed to see a primary care physician or go into the ER? Yeah. So, and there's two different scenarios there. So in this country, if you're uninsured and you need to see a physician for an elective uh, a checkup or some elective service, 
um, you're going to be made to pay for that. And you might be made to pay for it up front. They may say, well, you're going to need to bring a credit card. Mm-hmm. Um, that depends on the physician that, that you're seeing. So it can be very expensive. And, and there's a lot of studies that show that people who are uninsured have less access to care or seek care much less often than others because they simply can't afford it. That's yeah, quite obvious. Now, when it comes to emergencies, um, we have a scenario in this country where there is no emergency room that can turn you away from care until they have assessed and stabilized you. So if you have no insurance and you get rolled into an emergency room having a heart attack, you are going to receive care and you're going to receive world-class care Mm -hmm. um, because they really can't even ask your ability to pay until they've stabilized you and dealt with your issue. So it's not that the uninsured don't have access to any care. It's that the care they have access to is expensive and sometimes unaffordable, um, but they definitely have access to emergency care. This is something, and this is a little bit of a curveball because it just occurred to me and I didn't put it into our show notes, but it could be something that there has been some misconceptions about, and that's that the No Surprises Act is somehow going to protect you from um, getting bills, possibly if you are not insured or underinsured. And that's not the case, correct? Not the case at all. Um, the No Surprises Act hits people where their insurance company, so they have insurance has a contract with the hospital that they're going to, but the physicians that work there don't have a contract. It protects them from those bills. If you don't have insurance and you walk into a hospital and through the ER, you're going to get care. You're also going to leave with a bill and that bill could be staggering. Now, obviously, if you don't have enough money for to buy insurance, it's unlikely you can pay that bill. And a lot of hospitals have to write that you know, that bill off because there's no ability to collect, but mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. The no surprises act doesn't help anybody without insurance. I, I suppose the only recent benefit on that front in recent times is the major credit bureaus have announced that they're not going to look at uh, medical debt as part of, as part of determining your credit score anymore. So that could be the only, I guess the only development on that front in, in recent times with regards to medical debt or inability to pay. Yeah. And, and I will say that was a bit of a, in my opinion, a bit of a, um, uh, you know, a small give by the credit bureaus when you really think about it. And they were catching a lot of heat about, you know, what happens when medical debt ruins somebody's credit rating. And it definitely happens. Mm-hmm. But the majority of people who are uninsured aren't going to have very good credit rating to begin with. I mean, they're, and it's not, I'm not speaking ill of them. They're, they're a lower socioeconomic, you know, they're not walking around with an 860 FICO score right. and a $10,000 a year job. I mean, that just doesn't, so it, it, yes, it's good that they did that because medical debt shouldn't be included in that. Um, but it wasn't like it hurt them too bad. So going back to our conversation about universal coverage, it's the idea is that everyone, in the way that Bernie Sanders talks about it, it's the way that it's the idea that everyone has the ability to pay for a medical procedure if they were to go to their hospital or physician. And I, one of my favorite Bernie Sanders quotes is, is from an interview he gave back in 2019, 2020, I believe, with uh, uh, CBS News about uh, what the future of the Blue Crosses and the Cygnus of the world would be. And he said they'd be reduced to something like nose jobs, which is one of my favorite uh, quotes from him about how he views uh, private insurance. So then in some sense, is it possible then when we talk about universal coverage to blend uh, the private employer insurance that we have now and a public option, or is it all or nothing with something like Medicare for all? Um, It would be extremely difficult 
to blend a, an employer-based or a, a market-based space like we have now and governmental and receipt and get to full coverage. The reason being is that um, it's almost impossible to force a consumer to buy something they don't want to buy. We have this pesky little commerce clause in the constitution that says we can't do that. We can't force you into commerce. And so to the extent that there's always going to be, if, if, if there is some sort of an employer-based or even a public option, you know, getting that individual to enroll in that is, is close to impossible. It, it's also similar to why we'll never get to zero unemployment. You know, there's always some amount of frictional unemployment. Now, could we whittle down the 30 million uninsured? Absolutely. I mean, we could get that number a whole lot lower. I mean, that's about 9% of the population. Um, but we wouldn't get to zero unless you did some sort of Medicare for all and just said, all right, we're going to do away with the whole you know, buying system and the government's going to pay for everything. Medicare for all. There you go. There's your card. Now you have a health care. So, and this is something that in the little montage I put at the beginning, which I don't think I sent to you this week, but that, that's okay. There's a clip of Governor Gavin Newsom talking about back in January when he did his state of the state address. Uh, his proposal for universal health care in California. And one of the mm -hmm. things that he was very proud of that they were going to propose is regardless of immigration status, that we're going to give everyone in California universal health care. So if we were to broaden this out to a wider scale, who gets the universal health care, the universal coverage rather, in the United States if we were to implement something like Medicare for all or some form of a government uh, public option system? Well, so every proposal I've seen, and there's been several of them that have been floated around some mm -hmm. sort of universal health care, Medicare for all, you know, Newsom's was called CalCare, mm -hmm. um, which is hilarious what happened with that, but um, has been every person and it has been not every U.S. citizen, it's every person. So, you know, if you have a, you know, an address, a, an electric bill, a, a rent bill, mm -hmm. you would have health care. Um, and that includes the people who are here and undocumented and illegal. Um, so it would, it would apply to everybody. And, you know, I, and I can't speak about the Canadian system, but I am aware that in the United Kingdom, that you, if you were a, it couldn't be, and now that they're not in the European Union, I'm not even sure about this anymore, but if you were not a European citizen, you were not entitled to free care under the, at the NHS. If you were to go see a doctor or a pharmacist in the United Kingdom and you were an American citizen, you would still have to pay for that care, probably what they would consider their billed charges rate um, after the fact. Yeah. And so this idea of, of providing it for people who aren't citizens is, is almost a uniquely U.S. idea, but it's also more of a U.S. problem. You know, the right. illegal immigration is a much bigger problem here. And it's a bigger political issue. You know, I right. mean, you know, let's not pretend that people who are proposing universal care for all people, not just U.S. citizens, aren't doing so with some political motive behind it. So with that, I, and I, you touched on the hilariousness of, of, of Medi-Cal, and I do want to come back to that a little bit later, but mm -hmm. I want to transition now to the other side of what people mean when they say universal coverage. And what they really mean is universal access. So what does that mean in this, in the, when we talk about the Medicare for all or universal coverage uh, equation? Yeah. And a lot of people who, who like the idea of universal coverage think that with it becomes sort of universal access. They, they, they tie the two together and the, the truth couldn't be further from that. So, you know, what we are used to in this country is incredible levels of access. First of all, we know we have access to 24-7 world-class care at the local emergency room. 
Right. Yep. I mean, we really, you know, that's just phenomenal care. And we saw that during COVID. Um, we handled mm-hmm. COVID much better than, than a lot of other countries who didn't have the resources mm-hmm. there. Um, we've got really good access, even in the very rural areas of the, uh, you know, uh, of other country. Um, we're used to getting things done very quickly. You know, we're used to being able to get an MRI done within a matter of day or days, not weeks or months. Mm-hmm. We're used to being able to have our elective surgeries happen very quickly, not waiting long periods of time. We have access to specialists, uh, you know, in a very short order. So, you know, that's the level of access that we have right now, the people who have insurance. Um, and most people think, well, if I have universal coverage, that I'll still get that universal access. And that's not necessarily true. Those two things aren't the same. And in countries that have universal coverage, they're often very different. So staying on that point, if you were to say that everyone in the country had universal coverage and no one had to pay a dime out of pocket to go to the emergency room, to see a physician, to get an MRI, how would that break or change uh, our ability to access that care here, here in the United States? Well, there would be a, an expected increase in demand. Mm-hmm. Um, we know from a lot of studies that um, demand goes up with coverage. Um, the better coverage you have, the more demand there seems to be. Now, not all of that is unnecessary. Some of that's very necessary demand, but some of it is unnecessary. We do things or we get care because it's easy and it's inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so there would be a bump in demand as you know, as 30 million people suddenly had that free credit card. And the rest of the people didn't have to pay a big copay or deductible. You know, it'd be I want. Mm-hmm. That would put an enormous stress on the system um, to the point where we would start to see delays just because there isn't enough supply. Um, and then that creates other issues um, and dissatisfaction. The other thing that we have to be very, very careful about in the system, and it's something that concerned me with COVID too, is you know, something like almost 50% of all the practicing physicians in this country are over the age of 55. Mm-hmm. That means they're within spitting distance of retirement. And we stress that system too much to where those physicians say, look, I'm out. I'm retiring early. It's not worth it to me anymore. It's too much work, whatever. Even if only a small portion of those retire early, it's almost impossible to replace them quickly. It takes anywhere from 10 to 14 years to train a doctor, depending on what specialty and subspecialty and board certification they're getting. So, you know, if you have a bump in demand and then a drop in supply today, it's at least 10 years before you're going to be able to make that up. And and that's a real problem. And it's an interesting point. And this was one of the part when I was editing the thing for the beginning of the the program, talking about Canada's Medicare system, which is a little bit of a confusing thing for me when I'm sitting there reading about it, because Canada calls their universal healthcare system Medicare, but it is not the same as our Medicare system here in the United States. Mm -hmm. But Canada's Medicare system, they pointed out that wait times in many provinces have greatly increased, despite the fact that they are slowly accumulating more doctors and nurses, which is an interesting conundrum um, that I've come across that I couldn't quite find a, a reason for why that might be the case. Well, so, you know, Canada's had wait time issues for a long time. Um, And and what it goes back to is, and I know this is a word nobody likes to use, um, but it's there, is that everyone, everyone rations care. 
you know, they talk about rationing as this horrible thing. Well, it's a reality. We ration it based on income. Mm-hmm. The Canadian system and others ration it based on access and quality, but everybody rations it. Nobody gets the very best of access and quality for free. Well, in the Canadian system, you know, they're under very strict budgets. And so, yes, they've been slowly trying to, to increase the number of doctors, but they're not keeping up with the increases in demand. The other thing that happens in the Canadian system is um, there are certain things that are budgeted. So I'll, I'll tell you a real quick story. I was working mm-hmm. with an obstetrician who came from Canada. Okay. And he was new to this country. And he was talking to the other members of his group. And there's this drug that will help stop preterm labor. It's a great drug. Mm-hmm. And he said, when are we going to run out? And they said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, we got to know roughly now when we're going to run out, like October, November. And they looked at him funny. He said, we don't have anything you're talking about. And he said, well, you know, in Canada, we get our allotment of this drug for the year. And we always run out somewhere around September, October, November. And one of the doctors said, well, what do you do when a woman comes into preterm labor after you run out? And he goes, hope for the best. Now, mm. that was one of their forms of rationing. It's how they control cost. Right. That was completely bewildering to the doctors here because that could put a child at risk of being premature and dying or having serious issues, and they just couldn't comprehend running out of a drug. Well, that's the difference between a federally run budget-based system and what we have. Right. Um, so yeah, Canada, and, and I, I, I saw some statistics about like about a third of the people in Canada um, waited from time of referral from their primary care to a specialist, um, waited more than um, 18 weeks. And mm-hmm. where in this country, it was like nobody waited more than four weeks. So it, it, there are some very real um, waiting or, or access issues in Canada because that's what they choose, how they choose to ration. Right. And, and as the clip pointed out at the, at the beginning of the program, that in, uh, you know, varies by province. Mm-hmm. In, uh, I believe it was in New Brunswick, it was pointing out that that had the shortest amount of wait times at, you know, something longer, four to five weeks. And then one of the other provinces, one of the more rural provinces, obviously, had something around in, in the category of months. You were waiting months to get care from the time of seeing your primary care physician to seeing a specialist. And we can talk a little bit more about Canada and the NHS a little bit later, but I want to focus back a little bit more on the access and then also compare that with with the coverage problem. If we were to increase access, well, if we were to rather if we were to try and keep the access that we have now, but expand the coverage to everyone so they're not paying out of pocket, how much more expensive would our healthcare system get? And would that break would that break the tax system and the budget that we currently have? So um, great question. There, there isn't a really good consensus on how much more expensive it would get to have the same level of access, but having everybody have coverage. And, and part of the reason for that is it's hard to understand how much additional demand would be placed there. Now, that being said, probably the best back of the envelope calculation is to say, okay, well, in this country, we spend about $12,500 per person per year on healthcare. So if we assume that the 30 million people are similar to the folks who have healthcare, well, it'd be about 30 million people times about $12,500 per person. That's a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, that's not a rounding error. And so then the question becomes, you know, would it, would it break the tax system? Well, 
healthcare is already breaking the tax system. I mean, we are financing healthcare with deficit spending like nobody's business. Um, and so it would just break it faster and worse, you know? So, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, somebody that has a sucking chest wound, if you cut them open again, the bleeding is going to be more, but they're already bleeding, you know? So when Bernie Sanders then says it's all going to be paid for by, you know, a, a Wall Street wealth tax or a tax on, you know, another tax on capital gains or something like that, is that just wishful thinking then? Well, I, I think it's an it's ignoring a very fundamental part of economics. Um, and it's the only Latin I know, ceteris paribus, and it's mm-hmm. drummed into every economist's head. And basically what it means is all other things being equal. And, and the reason why it's important is what they teach us in economics is, look, all of these systems are interrelated. You know, if you push in one area, there's going to be impacts in other areas. You can't isolate something. There will be this other impact. And so when we study something, we say ceteris paribus, meaning if I don't worry about what I was going to happen to those other things, if I just do this, then this will happen. Well, that's okay in academics. It's just not the real world. So theoretically, could you pay for this with a wealth tax? Yes, you could. I mean, you, it's a math problem. You can say, I need to, I need to tax everybody making over a million dollars by X percent to have this kind of revenue. You can do the math. But what it ignores is, well, what would they do? How many of those individuals would move to another country? Right. How many of those people would, um, would change the way that they earn money to find the tax dodge? What would it do to slowing down the economy? Some of these people are making this money through investments. Those investments fuel businesses. You know, so it, could it be done? Sure, it could. But the real question is, to what expense? It's a little bit like, uh, you know, I, I, I heard an, uh, an oncologist one time talking about chemotherapy. And he said, hey, there isn't a cancer out there I can't kill with enough chemotherapy. The problem is I need to try to do it without killing the patient. So, yeah, there isn't a problem out there that we can't solve without increasing taxes. The problem is we got to do it without killing the economy. That's where I think Bernie's missing the point. And I think, too, that it raises a little bit of, of at least in, in my head, a little bit of a moral concern. And I'll, and I'll give you an example that I am one of the few people that probably really likes toll roads and appreciate what they do when they're done correctly. So I drive the Ohio Turnpike. My the toll dollars go to paying for the rest areas and the road on the Ohio Turnpike. In North Carolina, we had an issue a couple of years ago where uh, then I believe it was Governor uh, McCrory put toll roads on I-75, but then the money, I-75 down in Charlotte, but then the money was, excuse me, I-77. In Charlotte, the money was going towards other things. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it, it creates a little bit of a moral issue of why am I paying for something I'm not using? And mm-hmm. why does this other person get to benefit when they don't have to pay? So that's, for me, that creates another a little bit of another moral dimensional argument, which you know, can be left aside. What you can argue whether or not that should be taken into account about whether any taxes are are, are moral in that regard. But to me, that create an interesting thing that oh, we're going to tax Wall Street or we're going to tax everyone over a million dollars to pay for all the health care when those may not be the people that would actually be using that health care. Well, or, or or here's another twist to that same sort of moral dilemma. <clears throat> and and let's say auto insurance. Okay, mm-hmm. um, if I happen to be a little bit of a lead foot and I get a few speeding tickets, my insurance goes up, not yours, mine. Right. Yeah. I get a DUI. It goes way up. Okay. These are choices that I made to speed or to drink and then get behind the wheel of a car that I have to pay for. Mm -hmm. 
Now, there's a lot of healthcare that isn't a choice. You know, that you know, there's a lot that you get these diseases that you didn't make a choice, mm-hmm. but there's a lot that is. One could argue that obesity, uncontrolled diabetics, um, substance abuse, smoking are all things that are life choices to a large degree and have a massive increase on healthcare. And if I am a well, if I'm a smoker and I tell the truth on the Affordable Care Act website, I do have to pay a slight premium, but they don't check it, so I can lie. But let's remove smoking. If I'm an uncontrolled diabetic because I eat three meals a day at McDonald's and I don't exercise, mm. and I'm a substance abuser, which creates problems, and I'm incredibly overweight because of my diet and lack of exercise, I'm going to have a lot of healthcare issues. But my premium for insurance doesn't go up a bit. So your premium is paying for my lifestyle choices. So there's another, and that's sort of a, just a different way to tax this whole thing Mm -hmm. to say, you know, why should you have to pay for my choices? It's a similar sort of moral dilemma. Now, under the current system that we have, how much of that, I mean, I know you mentioned you can just lie on the exchange website, but how much of that is, do you see now where if you're, if you're a frequent smoker, heavy drinker, how much now does that affect your insurance? So if you buy through the exchange, not at all, because your rates are purely based on your age, your sex, and where you live. Okay. Um, if your employer buys the insurance, it can be blended into your employer's cost because they can be, if they're big enough, they can be experience rated, which means if they have a sicker population because these things have to pay more. Mm-hmm. And if you're a large employer and you're self-funded, um, they pay every penny of it, which gives the employer some incentives to, to try to encourage a more healthy lifestyle or terminate those people that don't have it from their employment. So I want to keep talking with one more point on this access, and that's who's responsible for bringing access to people that need it. And by this, I mean, if you look at something like Britain's NHS, the hospitals are all part of the NHS. They are part of the government, and that's where you're getting your care. In the United States, we don't really have that quite as much. I mean, we have VA hospitals, we have military medical centers, but then we also have a lot of hospitals, either private or they're run by universities or they're run by religious organizations. So in when we're talking about universal coverage and universal access, who is responsible for the point of service care? Who's responsible for the delivery of care to the people that would need it? Or who well, should be responsible, I guess, is the question. Or, yeah, well, well, right now it's, it's more of a free market system, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, see a need, fill a need. And so uh, perfect example, um, you know, Wake County in North Carolina, where, where, where I live, is the third fastest growing county in the country. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's like 62 people a, mo- a day coming here. Um, well, obviously the delivery systems are building up capacity because they know they've got more demand and they know that it's in a free market system. You go where the demand is. So right. hospitals are expanding, doctor's offices are expanding, we're expanding that capacity. If this were a government-run delivery system, purely like the Canadian or the NHS system in in England, there would have to be a process by which to do that. I will tell you that I don't think that's going to be nearly as efficient and as quick to market as the free market system. Um, Mm -hmm. It's also why we've got really good access sort of across the country, because even in the rural areas where people see an opportunity and say, hey, there's not that many people out there, but there isn't any cardiologist within a hundred miles, I know I could start a practice there and I'm going to get everybody. Mm -hmm. That's how the free market system is efficient and works. And in our delivery, that's what happens. 
So for the the people that might agree more with Sanders' idea of a universal coverage, universal access sort of thing, that might be thinking that they might have a much more optimistic view of the government, why don't you think that the government would be able to be as efficient as the free market in that sense of expanding in an area like Wake County or these other growing really tech centers in the United States? Well, um, my response when anybody says, well, the government could do it better is show me one time when they have. I mean, just please show me (laughs) one, you know, one time when they have. And the examples I use as as examples where I can say that they have, and it's first of all, we have a government run delivery system here, the VA system. They're incredible people that work at the VA system. I have Mm -hmm. enormous amount of respect for them. But I don't see people going, darn, if I could only get VA insurance and go to that hospital. Right. You know, yeah. and it's recently it got into a lot of trouble for wait lists and everything. So it's not that's not held up as the beacon of access and quality. Take a look at the U.S. postal system, you know, something that, mm-hmm. that runs about a five billion dollar deficit every year and has to borrow from the government. Well, if they were so efficient, why is it that I can send a letter through FedEx or UPS many times cheaper and get it there faster? Right. Take Amtrak. You know, they're subsidized by the federal government. Well, if Amtrak and the government was so efficient, why is it that instead of taking a 20-hour train ride to New York City from Raleigh, I can take a plane ride in about two hours and it's less expensive? Mm -hmm. So uh, my point is, I you know, we don't have any examples of the government being able to do anything efficiently. They have a role and there's things that absolutely have to be done by the government, but I wouldn't shore them up as the beacon of efficiency and productivity. I would completely agree with you, and I'm glad that we covered that point. (laughs) Uh, So now we're going to move on a little bit into examples of um, either proposed ideas, and we've been talking about a lot about Sanders' Medicare for All proposal Mm -hmm. in in this context. Uh, But we want to talk about other examples of universal coverage working and not working. We've touched a little bit on the NHS and Canada's Medicare system, so I want to stay there, and I also want to talk a little bit about Medi-Cal, even though that hasn't really come into effect yet. So what would you say are advantages of the UK's NHS as it is now? Well, um, the UK has picked a different form of rationing. Mm -hmm. Okay. The advantage of the UK is they don't have the issue we have of uninsured. You know, they just don't have good, hardworking, well-meaning people who literally cannot afford to get care and are sort of left out in the cold. And we shouldn't forget those people, you know, 30 million is too many and it's something that we've got to solve. Now, the disadvantage is the whole population there doesn't get the same care we get here, either in quality of care or access to care. So it's just pick your poison. Now, if somebody were to tell me, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice access and quality to make sure that all of my fellow Americans have health care, I respect you for that opinion. I may not agree with it, but at least it's an honest opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other advantage is everybody has coverage. Their disadvantage is not at the same quality or access that we have. You know, one of the interesting things to me too, is, and it could be that it's it's going to be like anything, you know, we could try here in the United States. If the government tries to implement something, it's next to impossible to get rid of it. And in the United Kingdom, what's interesting to me is how widely popular the NHS is among pretty much every political party there in most political groups. And I don't mean, and of course, this is the interesting thing where we got to remind ourselves that the conservative party is not the Republican party and the labor party is not the democratic party. You know, Jeremy Corbyn is not Bernie Sanders and, 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 uh, uh, 
Boris Johnson is not Donald Trump. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's different. They believe different right. things. But across the board, both conser- more conservatives and more progressives are always talk about trying to expand and fortify the NHS. And I'm sure part of it is the fact that, hey, this is the system we have, and if we get rid of it, we'll have no good health care. But I, th- I find that interesting that now that they have that in place, and it's been in place for a long time, that it's widely popular across political groups. Yeah, it's well, and I think part of it is the double, you know, and, and some mm-hmm. of the people who are clinging to our current system without any change, it's the same thing. Um, it's also perspective. You know, um, I, I, when I was in college, I had a professor who grew up in Estonia and he knew Russian and he went to the Soviet Union and in mm-hmm. Russia at the time. And um in the sixties, he was hired by the state department to go there because he spoke fluent Russian and to try to do sort of a public opinion survey. Um, and he tells a story about being on a train car and the, the attendant was coming, bringing him tea and cookies. And he was speaking to her in, in, in fluent Russian. And, and he said, this is a wonderful city. You have Moscow. And she said, are you not from here? And he said, no, I'm from the United States. Well, she had never talked to somebody from America. And he asked her, he said, do you have a good life here? Now this is the sixties. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, I have an amazing life. She said, my, my husband and I have our very own apartment. The bathroom is on our floor. We get all the potatoes we want to eat. We have a new pair of shoes every year. And after only waiting two years, we got to give our son a bicycle for his birthday this year. And he told this story to a bunch of American kids. And we all looked at him like, are you kidding me? That was a wonderful life. And he said, you got to understand their perspective is different. What, what she remembers is her father and grandfather talking about World War II and how horrible it was and the, you know, the siege of Leningrad and all this other stuff. So comparatively right. speaking, it was good. Well, you took a look at England, their delivery system. Most of the people there have never experienced what we experience. Right. So they don't have the perspective of that kind of access, you know, so they don't know what it could be. And I'm not saying they would change their mind if they did, but I'm just saying, from their perspective, hey, it's always been good for me. It's okay. I don't want to change it. I know it. And I think everybody gets sort of in that in that rut. Right. And I, I suppose it might be possible too when we talk exactly what you said, when people who are in favor of keeping, you know, whatever system we currently have here now, I, you're right. I think it's the same sort of thing that, hey, this is what we've got and it's pretty good. We should just keep Medicare at 65 and, you know, keep our private insurance and the way everything costs now and it's all going to work out fine, mm-hmm. which... I think most intelligent people might disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, the other one that and this is what Bernie Sanders says that he's modeling his his Medicare for all plan on, uh, although it would it would look a little different here in the United States, is Canada's Medicare system. And one of the interesting things I want to point out first is that unlike the way our current Medicare system works, where it's federally run, in Canada it's there are different plans that are put in place by each province that each get mm-hmm. a budget from the federal government. Mm-hmm. So I guess in the same, so same question for Canada's Medicare system, what are some of their current advantages and disadvantages over what we have now or is, or, you know, what could we take that could work here? Well, they have the same general advantage, which, you know, everybody, everybody has coverage. Um, the same general disadvantages, there's long wait times, growing wait times, um, and not access to the same level of quality. They don't get the, the same drugs that, that our, our folks get, et cetera. And, and they have the additional issue that, that um, Great Britain doesn't have, which is this whole province problem. And as right. you pointed out earlier, 
you get different levels of access by province. You know, if we did that at the state level here, where they, they did like a block grant to the states and said, here's your money, provide healthcare, you'd have the same thing. Some states would be better at it than others. And that can create migration, you know, people right, migrating right, to a yep. state purely to get better healthcare. And that happens some in California. People will migrate to a different province to get better access for certain care, which puts a burden on that province. And in our case with states would actually create a disincentive for the states to provide good care. You don't want to attract only sick people that hurt your tax base. I just kind of thought of a, a an interesting thought experiment that if you want to play along, and that would be sure. that if we tried to import what they have in Canada, where would be, what would be the top three states that would actually be efficient at running it or most efficient? And what would be the bottom three states you think that would be least efficient at running it? Well, um, based purely off of what we're looking at, what the political landscape looks like right now. So I think that the, the profile of the states that would be most efficient in running, it would be small with higher population densities. Okay. You know, you look at a Rhode Island, you look at some of the northeastern states. And the reason being that it's you just don't have the vastness of space to cover, right. um, which right. creates issues. You get efficiencies out of big, building bigger medical systems than plopping small rural hospitals out and doctor's offices, et cetera. So, you know, the Northeast would probably be better set up to do that. And they've come closer to doing it mm -hmm. with some of their proposals, Massachusetts, et cetera, New Hampshire. Um, the far West would be extremely difficult. Um, how do you make sure that the people in, you know, in Tucumcari, New Mexico have access right. to care, you know, all four of them, you know, because they deserve it. Um, and you see the same things with stuff that we have to provide as a government, school systems, that kind of stuff become harder in more rural areas. And as a, just an interesting point is you also have the problem in both Wisconsin and in Washington state where there are parts of the state that are connected to Canada and not the rest of the state. And what do you do if you're trying to get in? in a, I'm sure they have a system of the way it works now, but what do you do in a medical emergency when you now have to cross an international border to get into the to the government run hospital. Yeah. You, you've got that issue. You've got issue of bordering States. You know, if one state's doing a better job, do I just drive across the state line? Does my card a state card or can I, can I go into that ER in that other state that's doing a better job with it and say, Oh, I was vacationing here. Right. You know, that, that becomes an issue as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I live, you know, closer to Toledo than I do Ann Arbor or Detroit. Would I be able to go mm -hmm. to Ohio to get Medicare from where I live? Right. So you mentioned the West. You think wouldn't be super well uh, off at trying to import trying to import that type of system if we did that here in the United States. And one of the states that has tried a couple of times to roll out its own universal healthcare system is California. And most recently, they tried to do that this year, as we heard from uh, Governor Newsom when he talked about its proposal back in January. Uh, it ultimately failed. And I guess the reason is well, we'll get to the reason in a minute. But what what was what was the idea? What was the proposal for California's uh, Medi-Cal system? Yeah, so the most recent one, at least. Yeah, I think uh, you know it was um, Assembly Bill fourteen hundred, and I think they were calling it CalCare, but it was basically to take all individuals in California and give them free health care. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't have to pay for anything; the government would pay for everything. Um, and it was this wonderful utopian. You know, healthcare is a right. Your your state government will pay for it. They would take the money that they got from the federal government for Medicare and Medicaid, use it in their in their state environment, but they would provide healthcare to every resident of the state of California. And wouldn't it be wonderful? 
And it failed without a vote. I believe the, the sponsoring assemblyman pulled it before it could get to a vote earlier this year. Yeah. And this is not the first time that's happened. Um, <clears throat> what happens with these incredibly nice utopian ideas of providing everybody health care is at some point reality sets in and you start to understand just what would happen. So CalCare, for example, had a price tag of somewhere around $400 billion. And there are some economists who think that was way understated for, for a couple of reasons, but $400 billion. Well, the reality of it is without CalCare, what Governor Newsom's budget was, was $296 million. So CalCare would more than double his budget. Mm-hmm. He'd go from 200 billion to 296 to 696. Okay, well, <clears throat> it doesn't take a rocket scientist or a math genius to say, all right, if I'm going to more than double my state budget, I have to more than double my state tax revenue. Uh-oh, where am I going to get that? Right. Well, if I go after businesses, they'll leave the state. If I go after people making um, more than a million dollars, they'll leave the state. Because the problem with going after those two things is a lot of them can leave. You know, a lot of the business isn't tied to a certain location. Yes, restaurants and stuff are, but most of the, the large employers could move. I mean, take some of the big drug companies that are out there. They can move that, that headquarters. Mm-hmm. And people with a lot of money absolutely can move. They're the easiest ones to move. So what they realized was the tax hit would be st- just incredible. And they would lose an awful lot of that tax revenue. They just leave the state. Second thing they realized was that once there's free healthcare in California, everybody without healthcare in New Mexico is moving to California. Right. Um, You're living without healthcare in Georgia and you get a cancer diagnosis. Well, put me on a plane, get me an apartment that's cheaper than paying for the cancer. I'm going to get my cancer treatment in California. Mm -hmm. And it would become this influx of people with, with, you know, very serious illness, which is why most economists think the 400 billion was way understated. So what happened was reality set in and Newsom, who had campaigned on this and promised it, mm-hmm. knew that there was no way he could let that bill become a law and get to his desk because he would have to veto it, which would be the end of his career. So the assemblyman who entered it said, I don't have the votes and never brought it up for a vote because if it had ever hit a vote, it probably would have passed. Right. And, and that's the second time in the last five years that that very thing has happened where it's gotten killed in committee so that it wouldn't. Um, and I think the previous one was Governor Jerry Brown had that same thing happen to him. Mm-hmm. So that's the reality. It's nice to think about. But the problem is once you try to you know pay for the check, you realize it's way too much money. Right. And, and that's the thing is that California has already seen, you know, tons of, of big businesses and wealthy people move out of the state during COVID, in part because of their, their they had, I think they had some of the most restrictive COVID restrictions mm-hmm. in the country. So part of it was a protest of that, but also part of it is a, is a protest of the high taxes that they do have in California already, yeah. uh, more so than I believe any other state. Yeah, I mean, the, the golfer Phil Mickelson has talked about it a lot. How, how hard it is for him to stay in California, given how much he gets taxed and how he could leave. And, um, you know, New York City has the same problem. There's a very small portion of the people in New York City who really pay the bulk of the taxes. And if they left it, the city would be in trouble. Um, 
Well, we've talked about um, proposals and actual systems in place and what, whether, whether, whether or not they work, wouldn't work here in the United States. I think the general consensus is that if we tried to expand to universal coverage, you know, that everyone would have insurance and wouldn't have to pay for getting health care and trying to keep our access, we would we would well we would inhibit our access if we expanded the coverage. Uh, we would see longer wait times. Um, we would see uh, less opportunities to go get care, even if we can all afford it now. So, what do you think is a possible solution to this, um, you know, equation of trying to get everyone able to get coverage without ruining the ability for everyone else to access it? Well, to me, the, first of all, we're, we're operating at the wrong end of the leak, if you will. Okay. If, if you think about this, you know, access and, and coverage is a function of cost. Okay. Mm-hmm. The more we reduce the cost of healthcare in this country, the easier it is for people to be able to afford it, the easier it would be for the government to where, where necessary to subsidize that purchase, et cetera. I mean, people don't not have insurance because they don't want insurance because they, they can't afford it. And they can't afford it because healthcare is very expensive in this country. So, it, it to me, it's a little bit like we're you know we've got these million leaks in this garden hose, and we're trying to plug each one of them, you know, with our finger. We'll go up to the spigot, turn the spigot off. That fixes it all. Mm-hmm. And that we're focusing on the wrong problem. When Bernie focuses on we should have coverage for everybody, everybody was no, no. If we fix the cost problem, the coverage will happen. It will happen almost naturally. Now, are there some things we could do to tweak that to help it along? Absolutely. But until we fix the cost problem, the rest of it is sort of academic and pointless. Um, and so that's my first thing is, you, you know, we're, we're focusing on the wrong thing. It's, and I know we'll get into this when we get into some of the other stuff, but it, mm-hmm. it's, it's similar when people say, well, wh- well, how can Canada and the UK do it? How can Germany do it? How can it? Because they have a very different cost platform than we do for a lot of reasons. One, their population is much healthier. We lead the world in obesity and diabetes and substance abuse and smoking. And, you know, we are the most unhealthy lifestyle in the world. And that is driving an enormous amount of cost. It's not the only reason, but it's a big reason. We started tracking, attacking those cost reasons. Access or, or coverage will take care of itself. So I want to close on one final point, and that's this newer thing that's come up. And I think it really got started in academic settings, and it's slowly seeped into our political sphere. And that's this difference between equality and equity. And it's something that the Biden administration has pushed. You can go to the C- – and I'll link it in the show notes. The CDC has a section of their website about health equity. What role – well, first, I guess, could you define for us what health equity is and then explain what role that plays in coverage and access? Boy, I wish I could really define it um, <laughs> because it's one of those things that the more I have it defined to me, the less I fully understand what what the heck they're talking about. So right. basically what the, the concept is, is um, to try to eliminate what they call health disparities in patients and communities. And that gets into, you know, disparities in healthcare based on socioeconomic status, based on race, based on sex, based on, and and I'm not dismissing that there aren't very valuable things in that. For example, you know, there's been a lot of studies that talk about the difference in diagnosing cardiac issues between males and females, because, you know, physicians just approach the 
appear to approach the patients differently with their complaints. They don't automatically jump to the idea of cardiac issues with females as much as they do with male. That we need to get rid of that. Okay, there's no basis for that. But when people talk about sort of socioeconomic determinants of health health equity and health disparities, there's part of me that wants to go, well, duh. There's there's disparities in everything based on socioeconomic. It doesn't make it right. It just means it's not anything new. There's disparity in housing. There's disparity in ability to purchase food. There's disparities in safety. There's just, I mean, health is no different than anything else. And so my only point is we shouldn't focus on just health equity as much as to try to focus on, well, how can we raise up everybody, so to speak? Because the more you improve that socioeconomic issues, the better everything gets for them. So- that that's my take on health equity. So I guess then, with with the attempts to, um, you know, bring more equity into the healthcare delivery system, is that supposed to be able to, you know, provide better quality, or is it supposed to help provide better access to coverage? Well, the the concept is both, okay. and, and I think there's a play there. You know, there's there's definitely things that can and should be done, and are good investments, if you will in providing better access and quality in, let's say, uh, more diverse populations or in, in you know, parts of, of cities that are, that are depressed economically. It, it's a good investment because if you provide, let's say, better primary care and preventative care, you avoid downstream cost with, right. with yep. better diseases. Mm-hmm. And it's the right thing for a society to do. So, but that's the concept is, well, if we, if we, if we do stuff there, it'll pay off and it, it provides better health equity and, and health equality and all this stuff. Okay. It will, but it's a little bit to me, the amount of focus on it is a little bit of, 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 you know, focusing on the, you know, the broken toe of the car crash victim when they're got internal bleeding, you know, there's, when we get to that, we can get to that. There's, there's mm-hmm. bigger issues that we need to solve before then. Um, it's, you know, it's just, that's just my take on it. Well, I think we're about out of time for this week's program, and I do want to ask you one final question because it seems we talk about a lot of the negatives in our healthcare system or in the negatives in other healthcare systems, and is that is America's healthcare doomed? Um, no, I don't think it's doomed. Um, I think it's going to go through some changes. Um, I think it's um, some of those changes might be things we do proactively. I hope so. Some of them will be forced upon it and they may not be great, but we in, in almost every part of our country and, and economy and industry are incredibly resilient and have an incredible ability to recover. Um, we have some amazing professionals in the healthcare delivery system. We have amazing quality. And I have no doubt that even if it, if it crashes a bit, it'll figure out a way to recover. Um, you know, almost, and it may be like, you know, after a forest fire, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's new growth um, because it's what we've, we've done in almost everything. I mean, you know, we had the housing market almost crumble in 08, 09, and it, look at what it is today. Right. And that's what, what our economy tends to do. And, and I think that's what healthcare will do. Um, I think we're in for some rough times and hopefully we can, you know, um, stem the bleeding as much as possible, but we may not be able to. Well, on that uh, message of hope, I'll take it as a message of hope. I think it's time we end this week. Ron, thanks for uh, joining us as always. Thank you. Enjoyed it. 
The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Hambly. Have a great week.